Chapter 40 of Policy and Passion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Policy and Passion by Rosa Campbell Prade. Chapter 40 The Ordeal. Though Honoria's guilty self consciousness had exaggerated the fearfulness of the ordeal, it was so terrible to her that only the most determined exercise of self-command enabled her to maintain an air of composure, and to support without flinching the many curious glances which were levelled at her. The report of her engagement had spread as widely as Dyson had intended, and to many of those present at the ceremonial the demeanour of the Premier's daughter afforded greater food for interest than the exposition of the ministerial policy, which Colonel Augmering delivered in his mildly pompous manner. General Compton, who in full uniform was standing at the left of the governor, directed his eyes towards Miss Longleat in a glance of half-admiring, half-impertinent curiosity, which Dyson, noting, resented with indignation, and of which she herself, though she dared not meet it, was painfully conscious. Uncertain as to who had been present at the dinner-party, Honoria believed that each gentleman who looked at her was mentally charging her with the shame of that midnight esclander, and saw in the meaning smiles and nods which upon her entrance were liberally bestowed upon her, only veiled insolence or contemptuous wonder. With her humiliating foreknowledge, it seemed to her impossible that the secret of her true relations with Dyson should not be at once divined. Did not his grave look and the deep lines of anxiety between his brows belie all suggestions of triumphant love? And what affinity could her own pale, rigid face and mournful, defiant eyes have with the blushing demureness of the conventional bride expectant? Had she been less unhappy, the mockery of the situation would have appealed to her sense of the ludicrous. But the old Honoria, who had stood aloof in impatient superiority from the pettiness and vulgarity of the circle in which she lived, and who, in the keenest excitement of her thirst after experience, had never been able to divest herself of the cynical sense of individuality, had vanished in a night— and there had taken her place a shame-stricken creature, no longer preeminent and innocently confident, but unnerved after confronting peril of the kind which to a pure woman is more terrible than death, sick with revulsion, and only sensible of a deep personal humiliation, and of an intense need for protection and support. The actual performance lasted but a few minutes. There had been the usual clatter of guns and braying of instruments, with all the farcical pomposity of the viceregal entrance then the formal delivery of the speech, and the buzz succeeding its conclusion. These moments were the crucial test of Honoria's self-possession. As Lady Georgina Augmering passed out of the chamber, she paused, and with a curious expression of sympathetic inquiry and admiring protest upon her handsome face, whispered hurriedly, "'You must come and see me to-morrow and explain matters. I really do not know whether to congratulate you or to condole with you. In fact, I am quite mystified about the whole affair.' And then Colonel Augmering has told me, My dear, I always said that you were in a most unfortunate position, and I am sure that in every way my wish has been to countenance you. And Mr. Barrington's mother having been a friend of mine, I have had a particular interest in you both. But you will confide in me. Tomorrow, then, at eleven. Lady Georgina's rapid exit spared Honoria from replying. Then the wife of one of the ministers, who was sitting next her, bent forward to offer her congratulations and express her pleasurable surprise. And Miss Nell Little, looking charming in a coquettish bonnet covered with pink rosebuds, exclaimed loud enough to be heard by the President, who smiled and nodded, "'What a duck you are, Honoria, to give us the fun of a parliamentary wedding! 
it must be an evening affair now that it is not necessary out in Australia to be married in those stupid canonical hours. I think that the least compliment the members could pay the Premier's daughter would be to club together and give a ball in this building to celebrate the event. I shall suggest it immediately. We have got such a majority that I am certain there would not be the smallest difficulty in passing a vote. It would bang the greatest lark out. And, oh, I am dying to waltz with the new speaker. My dear, is it true that you have driven Mr. Barrington to desperation and that he tried to commit suicide in a handsome cab? I am told he has turned into a baronet. Well, if he is not quite dead, there is a chance for some of us yet. The whole house, basement and galleries, was in a flutter. The hum of laughter and conversation filled the air. Brightly clad figures filed in and out among the benches and trooped into the corridors, while the wives and daughters of the new members examined the decorations of the chamber and stooped curiously over the books and documents upon the table. Honoria stood near the dais surrounded by smiling groups who were offering congratulations and asking eager questions. When had the engagement been arranged? How soon would the marriage take place? etc. Some banteringly commented upon Miss Longleat's silence and preoccupation, while others, bolder or more intimate, rallied her upon her recent flirtation with Barrington. Dyson, watching her from the distance of a few paces, saw her wince beneath the elephantine jokes of some privileged members of the house, and, longing to save her from further torture, pressed through the ring which surrounded her, parried several awkward thrusts, and calmly appropriated his fiancée inventing upon the spur of the moment a message from the premier to the effect that the carriage was waiting. She clutched his arm convulsively, but did not speak. "'You have behaved bravely,' he whispered, as he placed her in the carriage. "'There is peace before you for the rest of the day. Even if you wished it, I should not advise you to come and listen to the debates this afternoon. I hear rumours of a violent personal attack upon the premier, and am afraid that the Gundaroo appointment may be mooted again.' and that unpleasant insinuations may be made. Honoria nodded apathetically. But you are certain of support, she said. I don't know what to think. There is an ominous air of mystery about the other side. However, they are pretty certain to bring all their artillery to bear upon us at once, and we shall soon see what sort of fighting they mean. By the way, your father bade me to tell you not to wait for him. You will probably not see him till after the house has risen this evening." He gave the order to the coachman, and Honoria drove home alone. Gradually the buzz died out in the streets, and at two o'clock all was still. By three the excitement would be renewed, and the struggle would have commenced. But now the world political and non-political must eat, and while its appetite was being satisfied there would be quiet in the camps. To Honoria, whose inward vision was so intensely quickened, these outside interests seemed but as specks upon the horizon of her emotions. She ate mechanically, attended to Janie's wants, and listened to the child's prattle, all the time with the sense that there were two distinct personalities imprisoned within her frame, the one palpitating and quivering in response to Barrington's influence, the nervous symptoms of which had never been so acutely felt as now, the other terrified and stricken, clinging to the thought of Maddox as to an anchor which might secure her against the rushing tide of her own passionate impulses. She was afraid of being alone, and had a dread lest she might yield to the desire to communicate with Barrington which was creeping over her. Her only safety seemed to lie in action. She took off the dress she had worn at the opening, and clad herself in a quiet-coloured gown, wrapping a thick veil round her head. 
Then, taking little Janie by the hand, she set out for a long ramble beside the bank of the river. Meanwhile, the premier, with an excitement raging in his breast no less keen than that which devoured his daughter, quitted the parliamentary buildings immediately the ceremonial of the opening was over, and, after rapidly traversing a side street which led towards the river, crossed in the ferry-boat to the south side, and bent his steps in the direction of Adam's Hotel. With a view to escaping observation, Mrs. Valency had wisely chosen her temporary retreat. It was a two-storied wooden building surrounded by trees, and situated close to the bridge, low down upon the banks of the Leckart. From its position and ready accessibility to the river, it was considerably frequented by commercial travellers and the captains of small vessels which crowded by the wharves or were anchored midway in the stream, and was little known among the upper circles of Leckart's town society. The place appeared quiet and respectable enough. There was a side entrance which gave easy approach to a private suite of rooms upon the upper story, which Mr. Longleat imagined to be occupied by Mrs. Valency. Anxious to avoid any curious glances of recognition which might be bestowed upon him by the revellers at the bar, he cautiously sheltered himself beneath a row of pines which screened one side of the hotel, and presented himself at the modest private door. His knock was answered by a comely but untidily dressed woman who led a child by the hand. She was, as the premier supposed, the landlady of the inn. She also, at a glance, assured herself of the identity of the visitor. Mr. Longleat, suddenly reflecting that it might be indiscreet to inquire for Mrs. Valency under that name, and not knowing whether she had adopted another, stammered, hesitated, and finally asked if there were not a lady staying at the hotel. "'Mrs. Valency has been here for three or four days, if you are meaning her,' replied the landlady boldly. "'She left two hours ago in the Hydaspes for Sydney.' "'Left for Sydney?' repeated Mr. Longleat in dismay, a sudden giddiness seizing him and causing him to stagger up against the doorpost. "'You must be mistaken. It cannot be true. Surely, surely you are thinking of some other lady, not of Mrs. Valency.' "'I mean Mrs. Valency, who was living at Emu Point.' There is only one of that name in Leckart's town that I know of. I was her father's housemaid long ago, before I married Adams and came to this house. I ought to know her well. She had her reasons for keeping quiet for a few days. I was sorry for her, poor thing, though I don't want to make out that she was an angel. It is not the men's fault if women are that. I was fond of her for the sake of old times, and I went down with her to the steamer this morning and helped her to get off. "'I am a friend of Mrs. Valency's,' faltered the premier. "'My name is Longleat. I see that you know me. You may have heard her speak of me. Did she leave no message, no letter? I had an appointment with her here to-day.' "'There is a letter for you, sir, but it is not here,' replied the woman civilly. "'Mrs. Valency bade me to tell you, in case you should call, that she had written to you to explain why she had left Leckhart's land.' "'And there was nothing more?' "'Nothing more, sir,' repeated Mrs. Adams. Mr. Longleat stooped to pat the little boy's head, as much with the object of concealing his agitation as from his invariable impulse of tenderness towards children. He placed five shillings in the chubby hand, and would have gone to devour his disappointment as best he might, but as he lifted his head and met the landlady's eyes, a look which he saw in them at once curious, contemptuous, and compassionate arrested him. "'Do you know why she went away?' he asked pointedly. Had her husband found her out? Had she received letters? What induced her to make up her mind so suddenly? My good woman, tell me all that you can. There is something for the child. 
and Mrs. Adams' fingers closed over two bright pieces of gold. Clearly, here was a source of benefit not to be lightly disdained, and there was no obligation upon her to be silent upon Mrs. Valancy's business. On the contrary, her woman's heart yearned for a gossip. Mrs. Adams looked at the premier, hesitated, smiled, and retreated further into the passage. "'You can tell me something,' exclaimed Longleat, whose anxiety was intensified by an undefined fear. "'You are in Mrs. Valancy's confidence. Come, speak out your mind. Tell me all that you know. I will make it worth your while.' There was a door upon the right-hand side of the passage. Mrs. Adams opened it and led the way into a small parlour. "'You had best come in here, sir.' she said. I don't want my husband to know anything about the matter. I wasn't, as you may say, in Mrs. Valancy's confidence, but I think that I know why she has gone to Sydney. More's the pity. Go on, said Mr. Longleat impatiently, standing with his hands clasped upon the table, and his face flushed and eager. I knew Mrs. Valancy when she was a girl, sir. As I said, I was three years housemaid at her father's, before I left to marry Adams. I was there at the time of Miss Constance's engagement to Mr. Fielding. Did you know of that, sir? Yes, Mr. Longleat had known of it. There had been much gossip upon the subject during the period of Fielding's late sojourn in Lake Artstown. The Premier remembered his jealousy of Fielding in the days of his budding passion for Constance, and her calm admission of the old engagement when he had taxed her with too strong an interest in the handsome squatter. He nodded, and Mrs. Adams went on. Miss Constance was vain and flighty, but I am certain that Mr. Fielding was the only man she ever really loved. There's more behind than I know. She has quarreled with her husband, that much she told me, and now she has gone to her ruin. Last night a telegram came to her from Mr. Fielding. What was the wording of that telegram? cried Longleat hoarsely. You saw it. Tell me. I'll give you five pounds to tell me. I saw it, assented Mrs. Adams. There was nothing to prevent me from reading it. It was lying open on the dressing-table. Miss Constance was always careless about her letters and things. As well as I remember, it went like this. I leave here tomorrow. We'll meet you in Sydney. Telegraph at once by what steamer you will arrive. I will make all arrangements. It was dated from Melbourne. I took her answer and sent it myself. It was to say that she was going by the Hydespies today and that he was to meet her at an hotel. I forget the name. I knew what that meant well enough, and before I took the message I begged and prayed her to think what she was doing. I told her it would be better for her to go back and live with her husband, even if he were to beat her and starve her, than to throw away her chance of keeping an honest woman. But it was no use. She was determined. All she would say was, It's too late now, Bessie. So at last I gave up trying to persuade her and helped her to settle things as best I could. I went with her to the steamer and took her passage under a false name, so that folks shouldn't know where she had gone. She had a lot of money with her. I can't tell you how much or where she got it. But all I know is that Fielding couldn't have sent it. And jewelry, rings and lockets and bracelets, I never saw the like. There was a check for a hundred pounds, she said you had lent her, that I got cashed at the bank. No fear of her coming to want— Underneath her dress she was wearing a necklace of diamonds that looked good enough for a queen. I caught a sight of it when she opened her bodice, where she had sewed up her money, to get me a note for paying her passage. 
I told her she'd be getting herself murdered on board by some of those rascally Chinese if she let them see what was round her neck. But she only laughed and said the diamonds were paste and they made a great show for next to nothing. There might be truth in that. I don't want to think too hardly of Miss Constance, but there were things said about her and other people that I'd be loath to believe. I am glad that she has gone and that my hands are clear of the business. I haven't dared tell my husband what has come to her, he that prided himself upon keeping his house respectable. And the only comfort I've got is that she was so bent upon her own way it was no good trying to hold her back. My belief is that she was right and that it was too late. There. Be quiet, Tommy. Don't you see that mother is talking? Drat the boy. What's he after now? It was perhaps fortunate that Mrs. Adams' garrulous propensities spared Longleat the necessity for making any commentary upon her tale, and that her attention was at its close diverted from observation of her hearer to the vagaries of Tommy, who, having possessed himself of a knife that had been lying upon the table, darted from the room and led his mother a scamper down the passage and into the bar, where a brief colloquy with her husband delayed Mrs. Adams still further, and enabled Longleat to overcome, unwitnessed, the first outbreak of his wrath and agitation. He staggered like a drunken man, striking vainly with his clenched fists in the air, and he muttered between his teeth, "'By, I have been fooled!' His heart palpitated wildly, and the room seemed to reel before him. The blood forsook his head. For a moment he knew not what had happened, and half fancied, when he came to himself, that the fit which for months he had inwardly dreaded had seized him at last. But with the sound of the woman's returning footsteps, the animal courage of the man reasserted itself. He shook his burly frame, and though the moisture stood in great drops upon his brow, and his knees shook so that he was obliged to steady himself by grasping the table for support, he lifted his head and met her inquisitive glance bravely, saying, with a pitiful effort to resume his usual manner, "'I am very sorry for what you have told me, if it is true.' but, being a friend of Mrs. Valancy's, I can hardly believe that it is so. Mrs. Valancy, doubtless, had private reasons for wishing to leave Leichardt's town. I can guess what they were. It is natural that she should have asked Mr. Fielding to meet her in Sydney. You might do a great deal of harm by gossiping about the matter, and that check which you cashed. I do not wish it known that I lent Mrs. Valancy money. She had calls upon her, in, in discharging which I offered to assist her, but it would annoy me greatly were my name to transpire in connection with her. My good woman, you are well-meaning, I am sure. I shall be glad if you will accept this little present from me as the... as a recognition of your silence and discretion. He fumbled in his pocket-book and produced a bank-note, which he placed on the table before her. Mrs. Adams, needing no further confirmation of her suspicions, quietly folded it up and put it in her pocket. She felt certain that the donor of the diamonds and the supplier of the mysterious cash which had been secreted upon Mrs. Valancy's person stood before her. She was not compassionate of the Premier's discomfiture. A man old enough to be a grandfather, she argued, deserved to be fleeced and then flouted by a designing young woman, with whom he had been weak enough to become infatuated. Of the trio, Mrs. Adams' sympathies flowed far more freely towards Brian Fielding, whom memory designated as a real gentleman, and worthy of a fate better than to be saddled with such an encumbrance as Constance Valancy. "'I understand, sir,' she replied stiffly. "'I am not given to gossiping, and if I were, I have too much self-respect to mix myself up with such a matter.' 
Of course, I knew that you took a particular interest in Mrs. Valancy, or I should not have spoken as I have done. You look upset, sir. Perhaps I can bring you a glass of something. I can easily fetch it, if you wish. No, no, said Longleat. Good morning. You may depend upon me, sir, said Mrs. Adams as she attended him to the door. He passed out, and she closed it after him, the richer for the visit by several sovereigns, not counting Tommy's odd five shillings. Instead of recrossing by the ferry-boat as he had come, the premier turned to his right and walked on over the bridge. The ground still seemed unsteady beneath his feet, and the noise of the traffic buzzed in his ears. He knocked up against a pedestrian and mechanically apologized, afterwards picking his steps more carefully. The only feeling of which he was strongly conscious was a necessity for movement. It seemed to him that if he stood still for a moment dizziness would get the better of him, and he must fall to the ground. He strode on, like a man in a dream, till he reached the treasury. He entered his office, and looked at the letters which had accumulated upon his table since the morning, but among them there was none from Constance. Touching a gong, he summoned a clerk from an outer office, and desired that all letters which arrived for him that day should be sent by special messenger to the house, and delivered to him there. He observed that the man eyed him curiously, and when he was alone looked at himself in the glass above the mantel-shelf, straightened his collar, smoothed his hair, and endeavored to shape his features into their normal expression. Then a terrible, sickening sense of revolt overcame him. He flung his arms heavily upon the marble shelf and struck his head against them. "'My God!' he cried. "'I cannot bear it! I cannot bear it!' He remained so for several moments, clenching his hands and beating his forehead in passionate rebellion against the fate which had worked the ruin of all his hopes. Yet it was characteristic of the man that he uttered no execration against the woman who had made him her dupe. Constance Valancy seemed to him less the being who had wronged him than the instrument of a remorseless destiny. If he had sinned, retribution had followed his crime. He had a feverish anxiety to know how Constance excused her falsity. Her letter had been probably directed to the Bunyas. It had been foolish of him not to go there at once. He put on his hat and walked forth, choosing the least frequented side of the road and shunning the recognition of passers-by who brushed up against him. In Alfred Street, leading to the Houses of Parliament, excited groups discussed the viceregal speech and the probable result of the afternoon session. Strange to say, the political crisis, which but a short time ago had been the dominant interest in Longleat's mind, seemed now to have sunk into insignificance, and in spite of the many portentous signs around him, the Premier was absolutely unsuspicious of the grave nature of the oppositionist attacked. It was now nearly three o'clock, and the members were on their way back to the House. To most of them, Longleat, as he strode past, was an object of interest, and several hailed him by his name. But he took no notice, steadily pursuing his way with his eyes upon the ground, until he reached his own dwelling. He entered by the side gate and betook himself to the study, where by his orders all letters that arrived during his absence were placed in readiness for his perusal. A miscellaneous collection strewed the table, but still there was none from Mrs. Valancy. He summoned a servant and delivered the same order that he had given to the clerk of the treasury. He asked whether anyone had been at the Bunya since this morning, and was informed that Dyson Maddox had called twice, and that the Attorney-General had also inquired for him, 
and had appeared anxious to see him before the house reopened. The Premier wondered vaguely what fresh political agitation was afloat, but the sensation of giddiness in a vital collapse seemed still to numb his reasoning faculties. It would hardly have cost him a pang had he then been informed of the crushing blow in store for him. Indeed, it may be doubted whether at the moment his mental powers were equal to taking a review of his position. He felt the need of a stimulant to sustain his energies, and opening a private cellaret, poured out a glass of brandy and drank it at a gulp. Fortified by the draught, he went out again. It was barely ten minutes' walk from the Bunyas to the parliamentary buildings, and the clock struck the half-hour as he ascended the great stone steps and then entered the assembly chamber. End of chapter 40 Read by Céline Major.